Uh, I'm not sure how many of you uh, are aware of the fact that uh, along with uh, enlightened souls like Ashish Dhar, we started an initiative called uh, the Indic Collective Trust. And as part of it, we hope to address quite a few Indic causes. One of the causes that we had taken up was the uh, cause of uh, Rohingyas and the deportation of Rohingyas. I just wanted to start off the session with something that was written in the immediate aftermath of our uh, intervention on the Supreme Court. So uh, let me just give you a, a short background of what happened so that you have a clear picture of where I'm coming from. We were already in the process of working on a couple of petitions, or at least one petition, uh, seeking deportation of uh, illegal immigrants of all hues, especially Bangladeshis, of course, from all parts of the country and not just from the Northeast. Because the focus, whenever you talk of this particular issue, seems to be only the Northeast. Fortunately, the Northeast is in, in news for some reason. Unfortunately, it's in the, it's in the news for the wrong reasons. But uh, we were hoping to broad-base this particular issue and go after the issue of illegal immigration and give it a broad spectrum. Basically, asking or hoping that the Supreme Court would set up foreigners' tribunals, not just in the Northeast or the state of Assam, but across the country, because it's come to a point where illegal Bangladeshis are in Delhi, they're in all parts of the country. It's no more a phenomenon that is limited to the Northeast. So we were in the, in the, in the midst of the preparation around, I think on the September 6th is when we suddenly heard the news that Mr. Prashant Bhushan had approached the Supreme Court on behalf of uh, Mohammed Salimullah, uh, where uh, he uh, filed a petition asking for a stay on the government's decision to deport Rohingyas. So that was the 6th of September. The matter was then listed for the 11th of September, which was a Monday. So between the 6th of September and the 11th of September, if 11th is a Monday, Sunday is out, Saturday is out, we only had the Friday to finish everything. So we had to immediately go to court, hoping that our point of view would at least be heard before a decision is taken on the issue. And so that it doesn't appear to the court that there is only one point of view that matters, and that there is a diversity of opinions, and there are other people who are equally educated, enlightened, and compassionate, of course, who have their hearts in the right place and who have, who have a legitimate point of view to make. So we had to quickly put together a petition, and we bunked in the petition. I think uh, it was done on the Friday, and on the 11th it came up. Before, I think, even the petition could be taken up on the 11th of September, there were, I think, a slew of articles written between the filing of the petition and the listing of the petition. And I'll just read out one beautiful piece that was written. Uh, on, of course, the, from a usual suspect platform against us, The Wire, okay? And the title of the, the article is Supreme Court Petitioners Must Be Made to Expunge Their Bigotry Against the Rohingyas. I said, okay, so look, mission accomplished. We are in news. So we arrived with the bank. This was the first ever petition that we had filed on behalf of the Indic Collective Trust. You put us on the map. You put us on the spotlight. Thank you. So all that is done. And, uh, of course, this was written by Mr. Prashant Reddy, who I happen to know. Uh, he, he, I, I'm not sure I can call him a friend, of course he's an acquaintance. And uh, he and I happen to be more or less in the same uh, professional sphere. He comes from the intellectual property fraternity and that's one of my areas of core areas of practice as a lawyer. And uh, I'll just read out a few portions of what he's written. And he, he says that the petitioners who have come to the Supreme Court asking for the repetition of Rohingyas basically represent these kind of values. I'll just, just indulge me when I read out these portions. For a long time, the Sangh Parivar has engaged in dog-whistle politics targeted against religious minorities, especially Muslims, stereotype one. 
The simple policy of the rising stars among the Saffron Brigade, I don't know who is he referring to, the petitioners or the council for the petitioners, I hope it's you, not me, because I'm just the messenger, at least on paper, has been to provoke and polarize through statements that are seemingly benign, but whose real import is to paint religious minorities as inferior second-class citizens, okay? Stereotype two. Hence the comments about Kutte Ke Bacche, Mia Musharraf, Love Jihad, Ham Panch Hamare Pachis, James Michael Lingdon, of course, who can forget the reference to Kabristan and Shamshan during the Uttar Pradesh election campaign? Of course, the new generation of leaders like Ajay Singh Bisht, also known as Yogi Adityanath, do not even attempt to hide their contempt for India's minorities. Notice, the left always pontificates nuance, subtlety, do not always mix the fringe with the mainstream. We are all different. It's not a monolithic point of view as far as the leftist point of view is concerned. There is a diversity of opinions among them. There are shades of opinions, there are calibrations of opinions, there are grades of opinions like neurolag pains, you have all these points of view. But all of us are supposed to be one lump. Somebody holding a jhanda shouting Ram, Jai Shri Ram isn't different from me. He may be saying the same thing and I may want him to say the same thing, but of course my way of putting it is certainly different. And I may have shades of opinion and my quality of opinion would be markedly different. I'm not saying superior, so different at least. So this is how they started off by saying all of us are one huge monolith. And then he goes on to say, the envelope is constantly being pushed and the new normal constantly being redefined. What is the new normal according to him? We are now witness to bile and vitriol against Muslim refugees becoming a formal part of pleadings filed before the Supreme Court. The problem with this statement is, it appears as if the author is ignorant of the history of this particular issue and the fact that similar issues have already been escalated in three landmark judgments of the Supreme Court in 2005, 2006 and 2014, specifically documenting the effect and impact of influx of Bangladeshi Muslims from Bangladesh into Assam. I use these words specifically because these are the terms that have been used in the Supreme Court's decisions. If you want to fault me, perhaps you should follow the Supreme Court and let's see, hopefully the contempt action will be initiated against you if you do that, hopefully. So then he goes on to say, the Indic Collective Trust is a Chennai-based trust that reportedly works for the welfare of the interest of Indian tradition, culture and civilization. In an intervention petition filed in the ongoing proceedings initiated by Rohingya refugees before the Supreme Court seeking a stay on their deportation back to Myanmar, these self-proclaimed guardians of Indian tradition, culture and civilization have made sweeping statements against the Rohingya people purely on the basis of their Islamic faith. This is at a time after 9-11 when I think most parts of the world, unless they are sleeping under a rock or under they live in a bubble, have woken up to Islamist terrorism. Let's not call it Islamic terrorism, at least Islamist terrorism. I'm making the distinction, of course, for good reason. And uh, then he goes on to say that it's not just the petitioners, he then goes after the lawyers. Here's a, a good portion of the article. It says, it is also worth noting that the rules of professional conduct prescribed by the Bar Council of India impose on advocates the duty to refuse clients who insist on unfair means. The relevant rule is produced here, so he extracts the rule and therefore he says I should have or any advocate before taking up this particular matter should have refused this kind of a, a, a pleading or this, this kind of a petition which uses certain language and which refers to Islamist terrorism according to him. Going by that logic, if somebody had refused to take up the case of Ajmal Kasab what would his position have been? Then I think he would have said that we live in a new India, which is a saffron India, where people cannot expect fair representation and people are judged even before they are actually put to a fair process of judicial trial and this and that and all of that would have actually been hurled against us. So clearly, 
there are two different benchmarks and there are two different standards. Now, whether that amounts to double standards, I leave it for you to judge. Now, it is in this backdrop that we need to address the issue of today, which is illegal immigration in India. First, deal with the perception and the political incorrectness of the topic itself, because it appears that anybody who holds a point of view which doesn't uh, resonate with the point of view of the media establishment or the left establishment is necessarily on the wrong side of history and is on the wrong side of uh, compassion, is on the wrong side of humanity. That seems to be the narrative that is being peddled. Is that truly the case? But why do we need to necessarily go down the path of emotion, sentiment and that kind of nonsense? Let's focus on what the law says. If you're a democracy, I hope that rule of law is one of the necessary concomitant that flows with democracy, that is consistent with democracy and democratic values and constitutional values. Therefore, I just need to ask myself, before a court of law, is my position wrong in law? Is my position rooted in law? Am I saying something that goes outside the four corners of the legal framework that applies to this issue? That is the only question that I need to escalate before the Supreme Court. Beyond that, I don't think I even need to look into anything at all. In fact, one of the questions before the Supreme Court in the Rohingya petition is, can the Supreme Court at all interfere with this particular issue? For a good reason. It's like this. So in the US, you could perhaps call it presidential prerogative or executive prerogative, which is to say that there are certain aspects of policy in which the judiciary is not supposed to interfere. For the simple reason that one, it may lack expertise and two, not everything is necessarily open to judicial review. Some things are a matter of policy. After all, there are certain benefits that come with coming to power. And because you come to power, you have the right to implement your vision. You can call it imposing my vision, but implement my vision. I have a clear manifesto. I have a clear agenda. I'm pushing that agenda. So be it. If you have a problem, you'll get your turn in 2019. You answer then. Until then, you'll have to wait. Your until your turn comes, please wait. You're not in power anymore. Therefore, if there is an agenda that is being pushed, you can only challenge it on legal grounds. Beyond that, you really have no recourse at all. All your moralistic nonsense must necessarily find its way. I can't see the dustbin, but in the dustbin. Therefore, the point is, you need to ask yourself one question. If, let's say, I can justify my position in law, and I can also justify my position from an ethical standpoint, which I don't need to before a court, but let's say I can. And if I can also justify my position from a civilizational standpoint, really, what is your case? That I have a problem with minorities. Now, even minorities, or let's say somebody who belongs to a certain faith and who is not necessarily a citizen of this country yet, has become a minority of India already. I understand, my, my mind boggles at this particular presumption because you conflate so many issues at the same time. If India is already unsafe for these minorities, pray tell me why do you want to invite them further and subject them to worst persecution? I don't understand. We are the worst possible country for minorities, don't you know that? So in light of this, in light of all this hyperbole, it's important to separate the wheat from the chaff. It's important to ask ourselves what are the core questions at play? What are the rules of law that apply to those issues and questions? And what should be the logical conclusion? Now, what is happening before the Supreme Court is not a private dispute. It is necessarily something which concerns every member of the country. It concerns everyone, every citizen, and therefore it's an issue of public interest. And therefore, commenting on an, on an ongoing proceedings, let's say on an ongoing proceeding before the Supreme Court, which is subjudice, in a matter of public interest, is not contempt of court, is my humble submission. Therefore, I will comment on it. I don't have a problem with it. If somebody has a problem, they can take it up before the court. Now, the point is, uh, 
there are two issues that I wish to address as part of illegal immigration in India as on date. Obviously, the immediate news peg is Rohingya. But something that has been simmering and festering for a very long time, at least since the 1960s or even the 50s, is the issue of Bangladesh immigration in the Northeast. Both need to be addressed because there is a clear continuum between the two. There is not too much of a distinction except for the ethnic group that's coming in. In fact, I would say, go on to say there is no ethnic distinction also because there are clear scholarly publications written by Burmese scholars who go on to say that Rohingyas were originally Bengali Muslims from the place Chittagong. They were recorded as Chittagongians in colonial records of the British. That Rohingya apparently is an ethnic term which can be applied across religious sections is I think factually incorrect and historically incorrect. Rohingya has always been uh, understood as Rohingya Muslims only, not any other community. So let's be very, very clear about this. In fact, as part of our uh, intervention petition before the Supreme Court, we have filed an article of 2005. I've brought this along with me just for the sake of reference of 2005 by a scholar from SOAS Bulletin of Burma Research. And she, she is, uh, let's say, a scholar in this institution who has traced the origins of Rohingyas, their historical origins, and the development of a Muslim enclave in the state of Rakhine or Arakan, and then has explained what is it that this country has been grappling with, just like us, since 1948. Okay, this is not a, a relatively new issue. It's been going on since 1948. Now, before that, there is one thing that we need to address. We live in a nation state. If we live in a nation state, certain assumptions and presumptions go along with the concept of a nation state. Which means I am entitled to protect my borders. So I have the power as well as the duty to protect my borders. Has globalization made a difference to the idea of a nation state in real practical terms? I don't think so. I think perhaps the best example as on date would be the Brexit example. The fact that you cannot erase identities, you cannot erase ethnic identities, or you can't erase religious identities or national identities, or the concept of nationalism is not moot. The concept of nationalism has not become redundant, is something that we need to recognize. Because that is at the heart of this entire issue. Because the argument which you will be uh, fed from the other side is, India is a country whose history is full of migrations. In fact, I had a gentleman write on my timeline on Twitter that what happened from 780 till 1947, inclusive of both, let's say, the Muslim invasions as well as the British colonialism, is an example of migration according to him. <laughs> I didn't know whether to pity him or to laugh my guts out. I just said, ignore the fool. There's no point in engaging with such a person. If you can't distinguish between invasion, migration, settlement and colonialism, God save you. In fact, then I think there is something seriously wrong with our education system, which it is. So the problem is to conflate these, these two issues. Well, see, the thing is their convenient position is if you are wrong on the law and if you don't have a clear position to support yourself as far as the law is concerned, they'll immediately switch to the other argument, which is the civilization argument and the globalization argument to say, are you not living in the era of Cold War, where you still think that national identity as a nation state as a concept still matters? Of course it matters. How does it not matter? Of course it matters. If let's say India is only a land of migrations and it's only been a successive wave of migrations and it's all been peaceful, why do we still push the Aryan invasion theory? Let it be the Aryan migration theory. Perhaps we may even accept it even if it's flimsy, has no basis, is scientifically flawed. 
You can't say on the one hand that you have a problem with this particular racial stock invading this country and saying that they subjected Dravidians to a lot of oppression and then use the Aryan invasion theory to peddle one agenda and then justify every other mi uh, invasion as migration. <laughs> I don't see how both of these can hold water. Something is terribly wrong. And I think it doesn't need an IQ of 120 or even 150 to understand that there is a problem with both these arguments. You can't actually say that both of them are consistent and they can be reconciled. Not possible at all. So we need to understand that unless and until we agree and accept that the concept of a nation state continues to be valid and it has to remain valid, there is no point in discussing the subsequent issues because then you will say you are only dealing with technicalities. Your mind will immediately say, sorry, you are living in the old world, you are a dinosaur, you are not modern, you are not secular, you are not liberal and therefore you have not embraced the concept of globalization in, in spirit and in substance and that's why you continue to harp on my country, my territory, my border and this kind of nonsense. Why do you fight? War is all useless. I'm so sorry. Be it war or every other concern that we are faced with today is intrinsically connected to the concept of a nation state at least as far as our external issues are concerned or perhaps even internal issues. Be it aggression from within, let's call it Naxalism or aggression from outside. Both of them are challenges to India as a state, India as a nation state. Therefore, it's important to respect the sanctity of the concept of a nation state in the first place and then ask ourselves, what has it got to do with this particular issue? As I said, the concept of protection of your sovereign borders flows from your right as a sovereign state. Now in India, what is the legal framework that applies to this particular issue is the simple question. Illegal immigrant ka kahin pe koi paribhasha hai, koi definition hai. Does anybody know of it? After all, if I have to place this argument before the court of law, I have to root my position in some kind of a legislation. And if I have to call someone illegal immigrant, I need to trace the definition to some statute. Correct? I can't be just using the word refugee and illegal immigrant without any kind of basis. The basis for this would be in two acts, in fact. One is the Citizenship Act and the other is the Foreigners Act. Both of them complement each other, where one defines who is a citizen and the other defines who is a foreigner. So, as far as the Citizenship Act of 1955 is concerned, it goes on to say that someone who is not a foreigner is a citizen. Beautiful definition. Now, who is a foreigner is actually defined in the Foreigners Act of 1946. And it has an elaborate definition where it says someone who doesn't have a valid passport, who has not entered here with the requisite documents, or who has a valid passport but has overstayed his, let's say, uh, a period of allowance or let's say his period of visa, so on and so forth. There's a huge definition for it. There is no definition of a refugee as far as Indian law is concerned. We do not have a refugee law. Okay. So from let's say a layman's perspective or a lay person's perspective, let's be very, very liberal. Let's lay person's perspective. No, no, I'm not being sarcastic. I'm being very, very genuine here. All I'm saying is from a lay person's perspective, I am able to trace my position to a concrete legislation which defines who is a citizen and who is an illegal immigrant. Whereas you are citing something which doesn't even have any basis in Indian law. To say that we do not have a law as far as refugees are concerned, we perhaps have what is known as a standard operating procedure that came out in, I think, December 29, 2011. And the NDA government has subsequently applied the same standard operating procedure. I'll just read out the standard operating procedure so that it becomes useful and it's relevant to the discussion because this is also something that we have cited as part of our 
documents before the Supreme Court. This is by, uh, this is on the 6th of August 2014 from the Government of India, Ministry of Home Affairs, Law for Refugees in India. This is what it says. And this one paragraph more or less captures the sum and substance of India's position when it comes to refugees. Okay, so just pay attention to this. India is not a signatory to the 1951 United Nations Convention on the Status of Refugees. Point number one, please note this. So we are not a signatory to this. Therefore, all obligations that apply to the signatories of this particular convention, they don't apply to us. Okay, we have not ratified, we have not signed, we are not a signatory or a member of this particular convention. Second, and the 1967 protocol as well. So every instrument, international instrument has a master document and then you have subsequent protocols that come pursuant to it. So neither are we parties or signatories to the 1951 convention nor are we parties to the 1967 protocol, point number one. Therefore, the obligations that apply and that attend and visit on signatories don't apply to us. Two, there is no national law on refugee at present. This is the position of the government of India, which is a fact. Government has circulated a standard operating procedure for dealing with foreign nationals who claim to be refugees to all state governments on 29th of December 2011. So the central government in December 2011 has circulated a standard operating procedure to all state governments saying, Bhaiya, agar aapke pradeshon mein ek illegal refugee aajata hai, ya phir refugee aajata hai, uske saath aap kaise deal karenge, uske liye aapka ek template hai, this is the template, please follow this. That template has been adopted and continues to be adopted even today. Is our position with respect to Rohingyas violative of the standard operating procedure is the only question that I have to answer. Because that is the only position that applies to refugees today. This is the only legal framework that applies to refugees today. This standard operating procedure stipulates that cases which are prima facie justified on grounds of a well-founded fear of persecution on account of race, religion, sex, nationality, ethnic identity, membership of a particular social group or political opinion can be recommended by the state government to the union territory, sorry, to the Ministry of Home Affairs for grant of long-term visa after due security verification. A foreigner to whom LTV is permitted by the Ministry of Home Affairs will be allowed to, be take, uh, to take up employment in the private sector. Therefore, what is the mechanism? The state government will escalate a request to the Ministry of Home Affairs, the Union Ministry of Home Affairs, saying a particular individual or a group is entitled to long-term visas after due security verification is undertaken. Now, if your security verification tells you that there is a problem in terms of identifying who poses a threat to you and who doesn't pose a threat to you, what do you do? So, um, someone who, let's call it a former friend, okay, former friend because of my political views, of course, uh, basically said, Sai, is it really your case that all 40,000 people, including children and pregnant women, are all terrorists? I said, no, it's not my position at all. Then why are you asking for all of them to be chucked out en masse? I said, have you been able to prove that Diwali is the sole cause for pollution in Delhi? Have you been able to establish scientifically and conclusively that this is the only thing that has caused the smog in November thanks to the uh, crackers that were burst in October, oh, you've not been able to. Then on what basis did you base your entire decision on? Prevention. Environmental law and environmental jurisprudence is based on prevention. Which is to say, bhai, dono taraf ladte 
एक कहेगा ग्लोबल वार्मिंग है दूसरा कहेगा ग्लोबल वार्मिंग नहीं है पता नहीं कौन किसको फंड कर रहा है वी हैव नो आइडिया वी डोंट नो विच जॉइंट इज फंडिंग विच स्टडी एंड पर वी विल नेवर हैव द टूल्स नीडेड टू अंडरस्टैंड दी इम्पैक्ट ऑफ टूडेज पोल्यूशन थर्टी ईयर्स हेल्स पर वी मे नॉट हैव द टूल्स कॉन्सिक्वेंटली कैन वी नॉट डू समथिंग अबाउट दिस to reduce the carbon footprint can we not do something about it is the logic behind environmental policy in general i am saying apply the same beautiful policy to security as well it is not unheard of or unknown in law to apply policies or principles of one area of law to another area of law if there is a way that you can draw a parallel between two areas kal kon security threat hoga ye aapko pata hai kya you don't know Are you sure of the consequences of inviting forty thousand people in this country thirty years hence? We don't know. But then my answer is we actually know, and we know this from our experience of Bangladeshi immigrants into this country from nineteen seventy one onwards. What it has done to the change of demographics in the northeast. what it has done to the cultural identity the ethnic identity to the law and order situation of the northeast or even for the safety of women in the northeast let me put it bluntly is documented it's known the supreme court has recognizes in three judgments on the same issue so therefore i have a live example in front of me and my sense of history tells me iske baad bhi agar tum seekhte nahi ho तो जूते पढ़ना तो लाजमी है एंड यू शुडेंट ब्लेम माई लॉजिक इज ऑलवेज बीन दिस वॉट इज द पॉइंट ऑफ यजीदीज टीचिंग दर चिल्ड्रन की हमारे ऊपर बहत्तर बार अत्याचार हुआ है आप कर क्या रहे थे इफ इट हैपन्स फॉर द सेवेंटी थर्ड टाइम आई यू गोइंग टू ब्लेम हिस्ट्री और योर सेल्फ फॉर नॉट स्टैंडिंग अप एंड देन वॉट इज इट दैट यू लर्न आप बच्चों को बताएंगे सेवेंटी थ्री टाइम्स हो गया नॉट सेवेंटी टू इज दैट द टेक अवे इज दैट योर लेसन If exodus of a certain community happens from a certain part of this country in 1989, that's a lesson for everybody <laughs> in all parts of the country, and not just the people who were evicted from that particular place. What do you say, Ashish? Correct, Ashish Dhar. So, therefore, you need to learn these lessons. And my exhortation has been: I don't need to prove, and it is not even my case that all 40,000 people. are necessarily connected to sleeper cells that's a conspiracy that i will not be able to subscribe to myself assuming that i'm a reasonable person with some kind of a conscience with an iota of conscience with a shred of conscience with a scintilla of conscience i can't do this therefore i only have to ask myself what are better placed people who come from let's say security agencies telling us because obviously someone who's been part of the intelligence apparatus and somebody who has served as part of the armed forces clearly has a better understanding of these issues than i do because after all i have the benefit of that throne called the armchair from which i tweet or from which i perhaps write a judgment therefore i surely must defer to the opinion of someone who is better positioned to address these issues do we have an example of let's say a better informed opinion influencing a judicial outcome on a similar issue in the past of course it does in the bangladesh case one of the central documents that was used by the supreme court to arrive at its findings that illegal immigration is destroying the northeast was a 42 page report of lieutenant general sk sinha who was the governor of assam at the point of time 
And his 42-page report was a huge red flag that was escalated to the center saying, please do something about this because if you don't do something about this, it's not just about this country, it's, sorry, it's not just about Assam. This is going to affect the rest of the country in times to come. And God, he has been prophetic, unfortunately. His words have, have borne fruit. You know for a fact that this is happening in front of you when you know for a fact that in Greater Noida, illegal Bangladeshis have created havoc. Right? And imagine how many thousands of kilometers it is away from Assam. Therefore, we need to learn our lessons from the Bangladeshi experience is my humble submission as far as the Rohingya issue is concerned. But then, before I get into the further nuts and bolts of the Rohingya issue, let me just explain to you what has happened in the Bangladesh case so that you know how politics has played a role which has been captured in the judgments of the Supreme Court, in the affidavits filed before the Supreme Court, and you will see that politics has been responsible for us not seeing enough deportations in this country. I'll just read out a few portions, and, and perhaps this may be of, of some use. Those who wish to make a note of this can do, because I have a very clear note of these things. So the first is a writ petition filed in the year 2000 which led to a judgment of 2005. The second is a judgment of 2006. The third is a judgment of 2014 December, by which time the supposed party with the difference had come to power. Now, point number one. In 2000, what was the issue? What happened in 2006 and 2014? Just pay attention to this because this is extremely important. The sequence of events make a lot of difference here. So the issue of protecting the ethnic identity of Assam is something that has always been an issue ever since its accession to the Union of India. And therefore, you had the, one of the first legislations to come out after the Foreigners Act of 1946 was the Immigrants Expulsion Act of 1950 that was made applicable to Assam. Subsequent to that, people realized that nothing of consequence is happening. We still see our identity and our places being taken hold of and vast um, uh, uh, numbers are pouring into this particular land. We need to do something about this. So the All India Assam Student Union, they start creating a ruckus about it. And then that leads to the accord, which is known as the Assam Accord, which is arrived at on the 15th of August, 1985. Okay. Now, before that, something happens. The government comes out with a legislation called the uh, IMDT. Illegal Migrants Determination by Tribunal Act of 1985, pursuant to which they set up foreigners' tribunals. They set up illegal immigrants' tribunals to basically deport these people. There is a Foreigners Act of 1946. There is a Citizenship Act of 1955. There is an IMDT Act of 1985. Okay, 1983. You already have a Foreigners Act to kick out foreigners. Why did you need a second legislation in 1983? Ask yourself, why do you need two acts to achieve the same object? Foreigners Act is meant for constitution of tribunals to deport foreigners. The government has absolute powers, unfettered powers under this legislation to kick out anyone who is not a citizen of this country, who is an illegal migrant. Then why do you need a second legislation? Now, oh, this is where it becomes relevant. The IMDT Act imposed a higher burden on the government to prove that somebody is a illegal migrant. 
Consequently, the burden which was there under the Foreigners Act was hiked up and spiked up so that it becomes difficult for you to kick someone out. Thereby defeating the very object of that particular act itself. Therefore, the Assam Students Union continued to write and make representations to the state government. The state government makes representations to the central government over and over again saying, do you know what is the biggest hurdle in the way of deportation? The very legislation that is meant to facilitate deportation. They go on writing this. They go on writing this until it reaches a crescendo and then they enter into the Assam Accord of 1985. But does it lead to the repealing of the act? No, it doesn't. It goes on. So you get a standard response from the central government at all points of time. And I'm assuming throughout, throughout this entire period, BJP was not in power. So the standard response from the party in power at, this, at the center was, the repealment of this IMDT Act is under active consideration. It was so actively considered that until the Supreme Court's decision in 2005 was still in force. It took a Supreme Court decision to kill that legislation with a categoric finding that this legislation has been singularly responsible for not facilitating deportation, although it was meant to facilitate deportation better than the Foreigners Act. The repeated requests from the Students Union of Assam and the State Government of Assam was, Are bhai, baaki pradeshon ke liye Foreigners Act lagu kar diya hai. Why is it that you have come out with a special legislation only as far as Assam is concerned? The Foreigners Act applies to all states neighboring Assam, but it doesn't apply to Assam because there is a special legislation that applies to Assam. Assam is the weak point where you need more attention and there you have spiked up the standards for deportation of illegal immigrants. This is not a point of law. This is a point of intention. This is a question of intention. A law is not just a piece of document on a paper. It reflects the intention of the legislature and also the intention of the people who are prime movers behind the particular legislation and therefore the government which pushed for the particular legislation. Therefore, the question that arises is, what was their intention? What were they doing? People who are supposed to protect our interests as a nation, to protect our sovereign borders as a nation state, what were they doing? So here's what happens. You have the Assam Gan Parishad, which, which is one of the parties in Assam. During the course of this litigation, before the Supreme Court, that is from 2000 to 2005, there is a change in dispensation in the state of Assam. Agar Assam se illegal immigrants ko deport karne ki baat hoti hai, to Assam government us case mein to party rahegi. Clear? It has to be a party to that. So union government bhi hogi, central, uh, state government bhi hogi. To state government ke taraf se to ek representation jayega Supreme Court ko ki bhai isme hamara position ye hai with respect to this particular legislation. Is it constitutional? Is it unconstitutional? Does it or does it not facilitate deportation? The Assam Gun Parishad files the first affidavit on behalf of the state of Assam. Clearly echoing the views of the student union, saying, yes, there is a problem. There is a serious problem wherein between 1981 to 1991, the population explosion of Muslims in Assam was much more than the rest of the country. And certainly much more than the population growth of Hindus in that particular state. Either they are having something that is extremely making them potent and fertile, 
or something else is happening. I don't know what to make of it. But the clear indicators are that this is the product of infiltration. And that is exactly the report that went from the governor S.K. Sina to, uh, to the union government saying 61 to 71, 71 to 81, 81 to 91. Take a look at the population explosion figures of both these demographics. Hindus in Assam, Muslims in Assam, Hindus in rest of the country, Muslims in rest of the country. Assamese Muslims grew up in exponential numbers compared to the rest of the Muslims. I don't know what to make of it. So, Ghosh Kari, maybe particularly, I don't know, maybe it's a favorite delicacy among Assamese Muslims or people who were having this. I don't know what to make of it. The point is, when this happened, the Supreme Court realized that this is an issue that needs to be addressed. There is a power change that happens. Guess who comes to power in the state of Assam? Congress. They file a second affidavit. Kya problem hai? Dikkat kya hai? Everything is okay. The IMDT Act is so effective. It is perfectly constitutional. It is perhaps the textbook example of constitutionality. What is your problem with this legislation? A simple affidavit without explaining what steps have been taken and uh, to, to deport uh, illegal immigrants is sent to the Supreme Court in the second affidavit filed on behalf of the state of Assam during the course of the litigation. So the first request that is made is because this is our official position. Everybody says, what is wrong with you? How can the state keep changing its position? Governments may change, but as a state, you need to have some consistency in your position. How can your positions be so markedly different and diametrically opposite? So they say, okay, don't replace it. Isko additional affidavit man <laughs> Your additional affidavit basically says something that is exactly opposite to your first affidavit. One says it is blatantly unconstitutional. The other says it's perfectly constitutional. So the Supreme Court says, okay, I'll, I'll, I don't have a problem. I'll, I'll use your affidavit as well. And then the Supreme Court says, I don't see why should I place reliance upon the second affidavit at all when the facts are to the contrary. You can keep portraying this uh, projection and perception of victimhood, but at some stage, facts will speak for themselves. The box within which you place yourself to support some kind of victimhood narrative will grow narrower and narrower, and ultimately, you'll realize that you've been a fool all along. You're a useful idiot for somebody's agenda. So that's what exactly happened. And the Supreme Court said that this legislation needs to be scrapped. The rules under this particular legislation need to be scrapped. So the government says, okay, chalo. Now I'll come out with a new order under the Foreigners Act itself, and I'll come out with a new set of rules. Again, the same story repeats itself. Now, this is in the year 2006. And my, if my memory serves me right, BJP went out of power in 2004. So again, the Congress was in power in 2006. Again, so in the first petition, the lead petitioner was Mr. Sarvanan Solowal, uh, who was the president of ASU at that point of time. And again, in the second petition, he was the petitioner. Again, going back to the Supreme Court saying, you ask them to strike down that legislation so that they can facilitate and express deportation. They again come out with a blessed order which is, which is in the teeth of your first judgment. So again, that is struck down. Detailed directions are issued saying, sorry, you have to do something about this. Increase the number of tribunals, border fencing ko zyada karo. Please understand that Assam has only a 262 kilometer border with Bangladesh. 
and the entire length of that border is 4096 kilometers approximately. Obviously, it's not a straight, the topography is not flat, there are issues that it's going to take some time. But my question is, by 1960, is that really your case? You couldn't increase the number of tribunals. You couldn't, and their repeated exhortations and affidavits before the Supreme Court have been, we have not been able to find qualified professionals to man the tribunals. I, I think the only comparable example would be of a child who comes late to the school. Why late? Kyun hai? Late aya. Are sawal jawab thodi ho sakta. You have to give me a clear response. That's more or less the response that they gave. And this is the government of India making all these statements before the Supreme Court. If a private litigant had made these kind of statements, the court's wrath would have visited upon that particular fellow saying, Kya kar diya apne? How can you take the court for a ride? This is an abusive process. I wonder why do governments get so much of an indulgence? What difference does it make? In fact, they should be held to higher standards. Any statement that they make, they cannot withdraw. You make a statement, you think through that statement and make that statement. Then what they do is, so we just discussed the Foreigners Act. We discussed the uh, IMDT Act. Now you have the Citizenship Act also. The Citizenship Act is what bestows you with citizenship. It can't be any other legislation that does this. So they come out with a provision section 6A of the Citizenship Act that was inserted after the Assam Accord of 1985. So they introduced that provision. Why was that provision important? Let me just explain this. So you have to look at three timelines. 1947 to 1966, 66 to 71, 71 till date. Okay. Anyone who has ordinarily been a resident of Assam prior to 1966 will be treated as a citizen of India and therefore a citizen of Assam and therefore he cannot be treated as an illegal immigrant. 66 says 71 will be covered by Section 6A of the Citizenship Act. The period after 1971 will be covered by the IMDT Act. That's how it was split. Now, IMDT Act to Gaya. That means deportation of people post 1971 also goes into the basket of the Foreigners Act. Right? Therefore, the point was the Foreigners Act now gives you the power to go after everyone. The Citizenship Act is protecting people between 1966 and 71. There are special provisions which are created for it. So, the challenge to this particular provision was again filed, I think sometime in 2009. 2009, I think. So first petition was filed in 2009. The second petition was Red Petition 562 of 2012. The second petition by Assam Sanmilita Mahasangha. This is the petitioner in this particular petition. That decision came out on the 17th of December 2014. After change in power in the center. Now one would have hoped that a change in dispensation would bring with it a change of conscience and a change of position as far as such a critical issue is concerned. The government in power in December 2014 defended Section 6A of the Citizenship Act until the Supreme Court struck it down or rather did not strike it down, basically said, we will look into this particular question of whether or not it's valid, but we are certainly of the view that ever since this issue has been escalated and has been brought into national spotlight in 1960. The number of people who have been deported 
is abysmal. It's, it, it's barely in lakhs. And look at the numbers that we have. When Justice, uh, or rather when SK Sinha gave his report to the center in 1998-1999, the number of illegal immigrants in Assam, I think was close to, um, I think 1, 1.4 million, close to 1.4 million. Around that time, the population of illegal immigrants and Bangladeshis in Delhi, around that time itself was 0.3 million. This was in 1998-99. Already they had reached Delhi. Official figures today are, the number is around 3 crores, 2 to 3 crores. And you can always add another 50% if it's a government figure. You can always spike it up by another 50%. That is the number that you're looking at. There is a clear recordal in one of these judgments, of the three judgments, that one of the pull factors, there are push factors. So, Bangladesh ke taraf se ek push factor hai aur Bharat ke taraf se ek pull factor hai. One specific factor which has been recorded in the judgment is that they are used as vote banks and pampered by political leaders. And it's, it's specifically mentioned. Now, when we make the same point about Rohingyas in 2017, we are called bigots. Our pleadings are sought to be expunged from the record of the Supreme Court. My bigotry is sought to be expunged. Fine, but who is going to expunge your idiocy? Who is going to help me brainwash your stupid brain? That you can't even seem to understand that this is a reality. If let's say I did not have a Bangladesh immigration example in front of me from 1971 to 2017, you could always say you're being a Trump tad. Okay. You're certainly being someone who is resorting to fear-mongering, who's resorting to it's not hyperbole, it's hyperbole. You're resorting to uh, bigotry, you could say all of these things. But when I have this example, which has received the endorsement of the highest court of the land in three successive judgments, I wish to understand what is it I'm saying which is not supported by facts and law. Now they say no, no, even if there is no law, which applies to refugees in India, there is certainly customary international law that applies to all countries who are in the who are part of the committee of civilized nations and all of us are supposed to respect it. I said, okay, tell us the principle which you're relying upon of international law to support the position that these people must be treated as refugees. They're saying there's a principle called principle of non-refoulement. It's just this. Assume that a lady comes from Pakistan to India saying that she is being persecuted for her religious beliefs and that she is not comfortable in that particular atmosphere. You can't force her to go back to Pakistan. That is the principle of non-refoulement. That's the simple point. That means, which is the persecution or which is the place where persecution is happening as far as Rohingyas are concerned? Myanmar. क्या वो सीधा म्यांमार से भारत आ रहे हैं बांग्लादेश में तो उनका इतना बड़ा टेंट है सो इफ आई सेंड देम बैक टू बांग्लादेश एम आई सेंडिंग देम बैक टू अ प्लेस वेयर दे आर बीइंग परसिक्यूटेड देयरफॉर हाउ इज द प्रिंसिपल ऑफ नॉन रिफॉर्मेंट बीइंग वायलेटेड सेकंड इज इट योर केस दैट इफ लेट्स अज्यूम फॉर अ मोमेंट दैट परसिक्यूशन हैज टेकन प्लेस इट हैज अकर्ड एंड इट इज अ रियल इशू और इट्स एन एग्जिस्टेंशियल इशू एज़ फार एज़ द कम्युनिटी इज कंसर्न are you saying that it is not possible for that particular state to be put under a watch by United Nations and by a host of countries surrounding saying, boss, it's no more your problem. 
Your problem has spilled over into my territory. That's precisely what Indira Gandhi did in 1971-72. She basically, her position to the United States was, please don't think that I am actually interested in bifurcating Pakistan. The problem is all these people have spilled over, millions of people have spilled over into our country. And I have a real humanitarian crisis and perhaps even a, a demographic crisis at hand. I need to do something about it. That's precisely the statement that is being made today and that's precisely the position that we wish to take today. So what is wrong? After all, she is the venerated figure for certain sections. If she is so infallible, why is that position suddenly fallible merely because somebody else says it? Forget who says it. Ask yourself objectively what is wrong with the position. Now, principle of non-refoulement also translates to multiple things. Iska matlab ye hai. Refugees ki bhalai ke liye, agar aap kuch kar sakte hain, please kuch kijiye. That is the sum and substance of it. To ab das cheezein kar sakte hain, which is send relief material. Provide them with assistance, financial assistance, humanitarian aid. Make sure that their refugee shelters in wherever, whichever country they live in are in decent conditions, in sanitary conditions, in human conditions. Do all that. Why does it necessarily have to translate to only one option, which is to say invite them, settle them, rehabilitate them in this country? One of the things that applies in international law when it comes to addressing refugee situations and humanitarian situations is, it is not one person's problem. People have to share that particular burden. You have a China, you have a Bangladesh, you have others. And certainly, I would say the, the uh, OIC perhaps could have a view. The Organization of Islamic Countries perhaps may have a view because they've always had a view on Kashmir. They've had a view on Palestine. Why are they not having a view on this particular issue? Why are they not stepping up and saying that why should this be India's problem? We will take care of these people. Palestinians become everybody's problem except that of the Arab world. Rohingyas become everybody's problem except of the Arab world and let's say Bangladesh. How is this correct? Secondly or thirdly, I am not going to make the argument that uh, because we don't have enough resources and it's already a, an overpopulated country, let's not take more people on board. Sorry, I, I won't take that position at all for a very good reason. Because I am in favor of giving shelter to persecuted Indic communities in India. How is that wrong? That is anyway the position that is being proposed in the Citizenship Amendment Act. Where we are basically saying that specific persecuted minorities such as Hindus, Parsis, Jains, Buddhists, Christians, Chakmas from Afghanistan, Pakistan, Bangladesh, three countries have been identified on the basis of which we also have issued LTV notifications for long-term visas. Let them be settled in this country. After all, we can't forget history, which says that these people have always belonged to this particular subcontinent and they should find shelter in some part of the subcontinent and what better place than the motherland itself, which is India. And again, there is, a, let's say, a legal argument to be made here. I will invite only those people in this country who, according to me, do not pose a threat to my existence. The law requires me to treat everyone within this country equally. But when somebody decides to enter my country, my prerogative in terms of a sovereign country reigns supreme, which means I get to choose who enters and who can't. And I can give specific reasons for it. I can give a specific rationale for it. Therefore, it is not illegal, unconstitutional, 
to say that these are the people who we will invite in this country because we believe they don't pose trouble. Therefore, if somebody gives the stupid argument, you invited Zoroastrians, you invited Tibetans, you invited these people. Yes, because I believe they don't pose any trouble to me. Shouldn't I have some kind of a concern when 40,000 people sneak in and out of those 40,000 people, 16,000 people are in the in, in perhaps the most controversial flashpoint in India, which is Jammu and Kashmir. And all jihadi organizations and pro-separatist organizations throw their weight behind them. Aren't you actually proving the Supreme Court's finding that there are political reasons for it? That this is true? Bearing this in mind, it is legitimate for us to basically take the position that on the basis of identity, India may have the right and perhaps has the right and has the right to decide who shall and shall not enter this country. And where am I drawing this position from? I am drawing this position from the Foreigners Act, which has been interpreted in two landmark judgments of the Supreme Court, um, one in 91, where it specifically says that the power of the government to expel an illegal immigrant is unfettered. It is its sole prerogative. I am only saying the converse. The power of the government to allow people to enter is also equally unfettered. If I can kick people out solely on my prerogative, I can certainly invite them on my prerogative. That is the converse. To put it in James Bond terms, the license to kill is equally the license to not kill. Therefore, as far as I am concerned, the Foreigners Act is the only legislation that applies to this particular issue or at least has to hold supreme because you can't cite articles 14 and 21 of the constitution because in the very same judgment the court is also held. All these people certainly have the benefit of article 21 of the constitution which means they will be treated as dignified people, they will be treated with dignity that doesn't necessarily translate to giving them a residence in this particular country because if you choose to do that Everybody can walk into this country, invoke Article 21 and 14 and render useless the power of the government under uh, the Foreigners Act to kick them out. How do you stop them? Therefore, our position has been before the Supreme Court. Before you entertain this particular petition, ask yourself if you can even comment on it. We are basically saying, I can approach the Supreme Court asking for deportation but nobody can come to the Supreme Court to stop deportation. Because when I go to the Supreme Court, I am basically asking the Supreme Court to push the government to exercise its power. Because it is not exercising its power. But somebody can't go to the Supreme Court and say, prevent the government from exercising its power, which is already recognized in two landmark judgments. Assume for a moment that a bona fide citizen of this country is suddenly branded an illegal immigrant. And then he is sought to be kicked out under the Foreigners Act. Of course, then you have the right to say, how did you suddenly brand him an illegal immigrant? What is the factual basis for it? What is the legal basis for it? It is nobody's case that Rohingyas are citizens of this country. If you are not a citizen of this country, you are not a citizen of this country under the Citizenship Act. Therefore, you are a foreigner. Now, under the Foreigners Act, you fall within the definition of an illegal immigrant because there is no definition for a refugee. If you are an illegal immigrant, the government's power to kick you out is legitimate. I am sorry, I don't want to use the word kick you out for the simple reason that it is a humanitarian disaster, at least as far as Rohingyas are concerned. Whether it is their doing or somebody else is doing, they are certainly at the receiving end of it. Be that as it may, 
to say that this must translate to embracing a national security threat which could blow in your face in the next 10 or 20 years what do you do so what did we do we said fine i am the sanghi troll who mouths this kind of bigoted nonsense let me see how many people resonate and echo my opinion so what we did is that we have placed before the supreme court at least seven articles from institutions whose secular credentials are above board an article by india today titled rohingyas in india and terror threat how jihadi forces may have infiltrated persecuted muslims of myanmar this is the india today writing writers myanmar's rohingya insurgency has links to saudi pakistan report the nation article pakistan and the rohingyas Al Jazeera: Deadly clashes erupt in Myanmar's restive Rakhine state. BBC: Why is there communal violence in Myanmar? Hindustan Times article: Lashkar radicalizes Rohingyas to wage war against India. So, what am I saying before the Supreme Court that makes me bigoted, which others have not said in mainstream media? The problem is not with facts. The problem is that the position has become politically incorrect. again this is another instance of branding and silencing merely because you have a point of view which is different from the established point of view the acceptable point of view the politically correct point of view i am placing law i am placing facts it cannot be your case that until i'm able to demonstrate to the court that every member of the 40000 community is a terrorist the government can't do anything about it which world are you living in in the world of national security threats even 10 people are problematic you do not need 3000 people to kill 3000 people in 911 you needed only 11 people or 19 hijackers to do that entire damage so what are we talking about nobody stops india from giving these people the support they need the humanitarian aid they need but do we really need to atone uh, let's say to hug the cactus we don't need to hug the cactus that's not our job at all we have not we don't need to suffer from white guilt let me put it that way to say that we we need to atone for some sins and therefore let's let's do this kind of karma and 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 atone for our sins we don't need to do this at all for all practical purposes and if you read the literature with respect to the rohingya insurgency in myanmar they have always wanted the establishment of an islamic state they owe their allegiance in fact they wanted to be a part of pakistan or at least a part of let's say pseudo pakistan which is bangladesh consequently when this is their stated political religious ethnic affiliation and this is their stated position are you truly blind to that particular position and do you want to put at stake the the livelihoods the lives and the security of the rest of the country you think these people are there only in jammu and kashmir you will find them in tents in chembur in mumbai some people have reached deep south they have crossed the vindhyas they have crossed the narmada but this also begs the question this is supposed to be a government which is alive to national security the national security adviser is a former super spook he's a former super spy who's lived under cover in pakistan i've seen all those videos so my question is what were you doing until all these people congregated here waiting for them to come in mushroom surely it can't be your case that you did not know that 40000 people were coming into india so, so this is to dispel the notion that we are somehow stooges of the government in fact we are asking this question of the government and the supreme court saying pray tell us what were you doing
Were you twiddling your thumbs? Do we have another Cargill on our hands? Where you are caught asleep? Therefore, the point is, this is not a question of which dispensation I support or which government am I speaking for, whose mouthpiece I am, whose megaphone I am. This is a question that concerns all of us. And today, what affects the Northeast will affect everybody else. So as far as illegal immigration is concerned, it requires us to do one or two things. If you do not answer the question of who you are as a country on an identity basis today, they will certainly push the argument over a point of time that this country has always been a melting point, a pot of civilizations and cultures and it doesn't have an identity of its own. Therefore, what is so earth-shatteringly wrong about this particular community settling in this country? Which is why it again requires you to go back to the basics and answer who you are. Which of course I have addressed in some other talk, I don't wish to repeat it. The point I am trying to make is this. The issue of illegal immigration may not affect people who live in a Jorbag or in South Delhi or in Sobo or in South Calcutta. I don't know what is it with south of all these metropolitan cities and rich people. But nevertheless, all these people may not be affected and for them this is only a humanitarian problem and therefore their bleeding hearts will say, Bhai, kuch kar dete. for them this is another way of putting chanda, that's it. Beyond that they don't see it. Who is going to be affected? People living on the streets. Because it is their jobs, their survival, their livelihoods which will be at stake first. It's always the common man or the middle class man or the lower middle class person who is going to bear the brunt of it first. Therefore, we may have the luxury of sitting in our air conditioned rooms, holding wine bottles, basically saying, these people, I'm saying, oh, it's a saffron brigade. They've taken over the country. They have no heart at all. And what bores, what country broods they are. That's the kind of nonsense you know how to peddle. But when faced with facts, when faced with real issues, when faced with law, you really don't have a counter expect except for hyperbole and allegations. I'm asking you, these are the facts and this is the law. Give me your counter. Your counter has only been, how can the court say all 40,000 people are terrorists? How can the government say all 40,000 people are terrorists? Are that's not even my position. You're creating a straw man and you're shadow boxing with him. I never even said that all 40,000 are terrorists. It can't be my case. It can be nobody's case. I don't think even Trump will make such a statement. Are the point is, and, and somebody asked me this question and I'm like, you're talking like Trump. And this was a lawyer who's practiced in the UK. And one of the most qualified people that I have met, as far as law is concerned, I respect his acumen, his commercial sense, everything. As a lawyer, he's a lawyer's lawyer. Okay. He's been there, he's done that. He said, you've become a Trump tad. I posted the links to the Supreme Court's judgment. And this was way before all of us were even aware of Trump's existence in the American political scene. So I said, are you calling the Supreme Court Trump tad? And I said, Vakil ke sehat ke liye Supreme Court ka judgment panna acha hota hai. That's it, he stopped talking to me. <laughs> he stopped talking to me altogether. And then he said, then he said, sorry, I didn't expect this from you on a public platform. I said, you called me a Trump tad on a public platform. What do you expect? Uh, why do you expect the response to be any less public? I don't understand. So the thing is, the moment you catch them on facts, they'll go back to playing victim. They'll go back to playing the perception argument. When you counter them with perception saying, it's not just me saying this, the rest of the world is saying this, please wake up. 
Then immediately say, sorry, you don't have a heart. Will me having a heart make a difference to my case in the Supreme Court? No. How does it matter? Some issues have to be addressed objectively. And please understand, we did not have a problem with Afghan refugees coming into this country. But we do have a problem with Rohingyas coming in. So please don't make it a Muslim issue. When Afghan refugees came into this country, we didn't ask them for their faith. For us, it was a simple question of, does Afghanistan in general, has it had an animus against India? If the answer is a no, there is no problem. But if Rohingyas have always said that their allegiance is towards the Islamic Republic of Pakistan, the land of the pure, or the land of the secondary pure, which is Bangladesh, then surely I have a problem with such people coming in because you already made your choice before 1947. Why is that position expected to change all of a sudden? We may deny the two-nation theory, but they have subscribed to it. Their entire identity revolves around it. They've lived that theory all their lives for generations together. Consequently, to suddenly hope that them being in a position of victimhood would all of a sudden change their position towards the two-nation theory, I think is foolhardy because perhaps this generation which comes in as, let's say, refugees may believe that, no, no, India has given us this place. Let's be good to this place. Can you not, can you guarantee that a generation down the line or two generations down the line, again, they will not join voices and, and again, let's, let's call it trifurcate India. What do you do then? These are not conspiratorial apprehensions. This is not fear mongering. One, my position in law is, is rooted. I'm not saying it's 100% right, but I have a basis for what I'm saying. I don't see your basis. Factually, I'm not the only one saying what I'm saying. I have people, in fact, we even quoted General Atta Hasnain as part of our pleadings before the Supreme Court to say, even he has said this and he's a proud Muslim. The man is proud of his faith. So he is not bringing faith into this entire thing. When somebody asked him on Twitter, what do you think of this particular issue of the Rohingyas? He says a stateless people particularly when they have links or they owe their allegiance to Pakistan, they pose a threat to India. He's made the statement. What more do I need? Therefore, as far as I'm concerned, the issue of illegal immigration is bound to explode because if the number is about, let's say, four and a half to five crores today, imagine what a, a vote bank it represents. And whether I agree with Saswati Sarkar in general or not, but you need to read her pieces which she has authored along with Shanmukh and Diggaj. That's a fantastic series to read on the change in demographics along the entire Northeast in the border regions. And it's scary. Border regions in the North and in cities like Mangalore in, in South Karnataka and Kannada districts. You need to read them. The luxury of discussing and, and deliberating all these esoteric issues will be afforded to you only when you live in a truly secular state. And a truly secular state, unfortunately, is dependent on demographic balance to some extent. If the demographic balance is not in favor of secularism in the true sense, then you really have a problem. See, it's not our case that you go after a certain community and sterilize the community like Indira Gandhi did. That's not our point at all. You can't do that. Can you really go after a certain community and say, Nee, bhai, aapke zyada bachche ho rahe, thoda kam karlo. 
that would be wrong that's not even the position that's being said today but it is certainly my case and it can be our case ki bahar se to log na aaye let there not be an artificial increase in population and an alteration in demographics because of extraneous considerations and external factors can we not stop that that is a legitimate expectation so for me the, this is our case this is the issue what i'd suggest is kindly read all three judgments of the supreme court of 2005 2006 and 2014 they make for brilliant powerful and scary reading because that is more or less playing itself out as we speak and i hope it doesn't reflect the future what can we do about it i realized during the course of my research that somebody had filed a writ petition civil 125 of 1998 a foresighted gentleman specifically pointing out to the supreme court that the issue of bangladesh immigration is not limited only to the northeast why are you not constituting foreigners tribunals in the rest of the country that was dismissed or not not dismissed that was disposed of in an order dated 15th of april 2009 one page order basically saying sarkari machinery apna kaam kar rahi hai aap chinta mat kijiye based on an affidavit from the government basically saying that we have taken the necessary steps to increase the number of tribunals to find the requisite qualified professionals we are fencing the border aur kya karenge itna hi to kar sakte hain bas that's it the petition was disposed of why is this an issue now i am not sure in the light of this particular order can i go back to the supreme court again asking now revisit this particular issue you have already come out with a one page judgment in 2009 in response to such a serious issue perhaps the it's possible that the supreme court may have thought in 2009 are this is fear mongering this is only an issue limited to the northeast when in fact in sk sinha's report itself he said that they were already in delhi i am hoping that the changed circumstances and the changed factual matrix allows us to go back to the supreme court and say you need to revisit and reconsider this foreigners tribunals have to be constituted across the country find the resources for it because if you don't do it you will have a real law and order national security situation on your hands we hope to do it let's see what happens so that's my case questions please